We are closing in on the end of this series, which is on the book of James. It's written by one of the, the early prominent leaders of the church in Jerusalem, James, after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And there are many letters, right, in the New Testament. But this is less of a letter to a community and a place than it is a broadcast to all of the Jesus followers near and far, giving them some tips, some, some little ideas of what it looks like to follow Jesus under persecution, under stress. But it is full on. This letter is full on. And I, I've been really interested over the years in email sign-offs. A little tangent, but you'll understand why in a minute. I don't know what your go-to email sign-off is. I'm a cheers guy. But there was a study that took place a little while ago, a few years ago, called A Little Thanks Goes a Long Way. They've named it well. Where essentially they tried to work out if you changed your sign-off at the end of your email, what uplift would that give in the capacity for someone to respond to your email? In other words, whatever you write underneath when you say thank you, best wishes, cheers, what does it do to someone replying to you? And here's what they found. Here are the top five. Kind regards, kind of formal, gives you a 13.5%. Not bad. Uplifting someone replying to you. Cheers was next. Thank you. Thanks. But my favourite, and it's got to be the most passive-aggressive that you can imagine, <laughs> thank you in advance gives you a 38.3% chance of someone replying back to you or an increase. That is genuinely remarkable, and I'm looking forward to receiving some emails this week which say thank you in advance. But this letter from James is more of a thanks in advance. It's not some of the niceties that you see in some of the other letters. There isn't a praise sandwich with some nice stuff at the beginning, some nice stuff at the end. It's like, bam, we're straight in. Thanks in advance for doing some of these tips that I can see that the church needs right now. And these past few weeks we've been tracking through, and it, I think it's been speaking to so many in our church community, I think translating so well into where we're at as a church, where we're at as a culture. So if you've missed it, get involved. But we're going to do uh, the reading for today. So we're going to jump straight in. It's uh, chapter 3 from verse 13 to the end of chapter 4. And I think Emma, who was on the South Gathering, is joining us um, in a minute. She's going to pop up on the side screen if she can. Yes, Toller's nailed it. She's coming now. Yes, Emma. How are you doing? Hey. I'm oh. good, thanks. Yeah, I'm good week? Sitting by my door okay. um, because of internet issues. But... <laughs> well, let's see if you can go for the next couple of minutes. So take it away from chapter 3, verse 13. Right. Two kinds of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace, Reaper harvest of righteousness. Oh, amazing. Can you keep going? Could you do it to the end of chapter four? Is that easy for you to do? Sure. It's a longy. It's a longy, but it's a goody. <laughs> Thanks, Emma. Um, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that his, he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners and purify your house hearts you double-minded grieve mourn and wail change your loft laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourselves before the lord and he will lift you up brothers and sisters do not slander one another anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it when you judge the law you are not keeping it but Sitting in judge on you, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Boasting about tomorrow. Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? What are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes? Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this as or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Amazing. Thank you so much, Emma. Sorry for the surprise. That was an absolute marathon, wasn't it? But you nailed it. Thank you so much. So there is lots going on here, right? And we're going to get into that. But here's the headline for us today, that we need heavenly, holy, godly wisdom. We need, need wisdom. And wisdom is kind of James's thing. It's how he got his name. Some of the early church fathers and some of the, the early community, they would have known him as James the Just or James the Righteous. That's what he was known as from people of old, is what it says in some of those earliest writings. It's how he kicks off his book. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. Ask for more wisdom. It's how he became the first leader of that church in Jerusalem. It's why he keeps referencing verses and passages from Proverbs, the Old Testament book of wisdom and truths. It's why he keeps referencing the teachings of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, such wise teaching for what it looks like to be a follower and believer in Jesus. But here's the problem with wisdom. It's pretty elusive. It's hard to pin down. And yet somehow we know we need more wisdom in the world. And boy, do we need more wisdom in the world. But what is wisdom? Now, I want to give you a little insight. I was once told what wisdom was in relation to tomatoes. Now, here's the thing, a little picture of tomatoes has almost no relevance to this talk other than what I'm about to share. Here's the thing about tomatoes. Knowledge is knowing that tomato is actually a fruit. I don't know if you knew that. Tomato isn't a vegetable. Tomato is a fruit. That is knowledge. Wisdom is not putting that tomato in a fruit salad. Because here's the thing. You're going to make a huge mistake. You're going to taste it. It's going to taste absolutely horrific. So we know that a tomato is a fruit. 
but then applying that knowledge means having wisdom and knowing not to put it in the fruit salad. And that is how the world views wisdom. It's an application of knowledge and experience that we've built up over time. It's why we have this picture of wisdom as coming with age, of having wise old owls, of being able to, to see in those grey hairs that people get that they have wisdom because they're getting older. Sorry, Tommy, Ellis, I know that you've got a few more grey hairs over this last year. We've been working you hard. I, I didn't even plan to say that. I'm really sorry, Tommy. That's a stitch up. But how James talks about wisdom is entirely different. He starts at verse 13 in chapter 3 with the question, who is wise among you? Just stop for a second. Think, who is wise among the friendship groups that you have among your family? What do they have? What are the qualities that they hold? And James goes on, this is what they should look like. Let them show it by their good deed, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. In other words, wisdom isn't something that's intellectual. It's not about being a smart aleck. It's not about being a wise bum. It's about the fruit. It's about the fruit that is visible in the behaviour that they live out. And back to what we've seen earlier in James, right? When we talk about our faith, it's lived out in the life that we lead. Pete talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Faith without deeds is... Thanks, Pete. I really needed that. Faith without deeds is dead. And as with faith... Our wisdom that we, is lived out in the life that we lead. You could say that wisdom without fruit is dead. He doesn't say that. I've spoken that into it. But I think that's kind of the gist of what he's getting to. We need to see fruit in order to truly inhabit what it means to be wise. Instead of what we see as wisdom, James says that earthly wisdom actually comes from a place of self-centeredness, of selfish ambition, of self-promotion. But heavenly wisdom is something different entirely. And as we're going to see, heavenly wisdom is all about aligning our desires to the will of God. That's what it looks like to be wise. Heavenly wisdom is all in on submission, all in on submitting to God. It's all in on being humble, on humility as a standout criteria in our character, on having a right view of self and a right view of God, a right view of others. It's all in on having the right posture of the heart, all in on purity, on holiness. That's what it looks like to have wisdom. Or put another way, our understanding of wisdom stems from what we know and what we've achieved. Our knowledge and our experience. But heaven's understanding, a kingdom view of wisdom, is completely different. It stems from who we are, our very being, and what our lives look like. The actions and the way that we live out our lives. Instead of accumulating knowledge and understanding, which could feel like it discounts so many of us, from being able to be wise, not least because so many in our church community might be, feel like they're on the younger end of the scale and you're like, how can I be wise? And God is saying through this letter and through the person of James, you can have wisdom. You can have wisdom because you need to be all in with God and live out your life accordingly. Wisdom from heaven is all about where we put our trust, where we put our faith in the person of Jesus. But wisdom sometimes, I think, gets a bit of a bad rep. It sits on the fence, it's the backseat driver, it's non-committal, like you could do this or you could do that. And wisdom, according to James, is something completely different. It is punchy. It is absolutely punchy. Wisdom is putting all of your chips on the table, pushing them over to Jesus and saying, I'm all in. That is what wisdom looks like for James. And earthly wisdom, it leads to chaos, it leads to disorder, it doesn't know up from down. And yet heavenly wisdom, it leads to peace to order in the midst of chaos. And boy, do we really want to access that. Sounds good. We want wisdom. How do we get it? 
And this is what James is going to talk us through. So we see a clue right up top in verse 13 again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by good deeds, in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility is something that's going to come up time and time again. Let them show it by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. God opposes the proud, but he shows favour to the humble. Submit or humble yourselves then to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility, it seems, uncovers something of our heart. It shows something of what our true desires are. I think it's incredibly hard, I think, to have authentic humility unless you've aligned your desires to the will of God. And it's those desires that James is going to hone in on next. So right at the beginning of chapter 4, he says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Quarrels is a nice word, isn't it? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Pretty heavy stuff. But this is where James pivots. Instead of just talking about timeless tips and kind of helpful thoughts, remember that he is writing to real people. These are the scattered believers who are across Um, the different lands and it's as if he's saying look at your lives more than that look at your communities there are disagreements between you maybe there's even disagreements in your very being as an individual why because of our desires and if you've been around KXC for any length of time you would have heard that we are desiring beings we were created to desire and our desires point us in a certain direction of how we lead our lives our desires lead to action and we cannot help but see that in our own lives right I walk past the bakery I smell the croissant I walk in the bakery I buy the croissant I eat the croissant because I desired that croissant I walk past the pub I see the tv on in the corner the football's playing I desperately long to see Rashford sneak another one in the bottom corner I go in there just for a sneaky 20 minutes I buy a half pint I'm suddenly in the pub because I longed to see that second goal I'm standing in the queue in the supermarket I'm waiting to pay for all my stuff and just in the corner of my eye I can see a Twix a shiny Twix it's just calling out for my name and I just casually put it in the basket I pay for all the shopping I walk out and I eat the Twix on the way home we are desiring beings we cannot help but desire but here's the thing about desires there's nothing wrong with them there's nothing wrong with desires in fact you were made to desire you were made to love but we are broken We're imperfect beings, and time and time again, those desires, those longings, those loves, they are distorted. One of the early church fathers, Augustine, this was his thing. His thing was all about what we love, what we desire, and he said this, in order to discover the character of people, we only have to observe what they love. We only have to look at what they love, because that cannot help but overflow into the way that they live their lives. It's why we harp on about pattern here at KXC, not just as another thing, not just to get involved in another night of your week, but because in creating patterns, we shift the dial ever so slightly, one day, one hour at a time, towards our true love of Jesus, to be with him, to be like him, to do the stuff that he did. That's why we do it. It takes time to rewire some of those distorted and broken desires that we know that we have. So back to James. Verse 2 in chapter 4, you desire, but you do not have. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. In other words, you desire, you love, you can't help it, but it's coming from totally 
the wrong place. It comes from your brokenness, your broken longings. That word for desires that he uses in the Greek is hedonites, where we get the word hedonism. It's about pleasing yourself. That's where James is saying to so many of those believers who are scattered, that's where you're trying to get your desires from. It comes from a a broken sense of self-centeredness. But here's the key for James. Instead of throwing in the towel at this point, there's no hope, we're broken. How could we ever get better? He says, ask God. What are his desires? What does he long for? What does he long to see happen in this world? And here's where we come back to humility. This is what it looks like to have humility because we have this opportunity to determine the life that we live and who we're living for, yourself or the glorification of God, the service of others. And we have this choice. Which direction are we going to go in? A very quick detour just before we come back to that. It's fair to say this past year uh, would have had an enormous impact on pretty much everyone, right, who will be watching this. But one of the fascinating impacts that I've seen is how just geographically small our lives have become. And that means that it can be harder to see God in some of the places we used to see him. It's harder to see him in nature because we're not doing those long, crazy walks anymore and seeing him in the beauty of natural being around us. It's harder to see him in embodied community because we're not all in a room worshipping together but there is something beautiful about seeing God in the small things in the mundane things in the routine of life in your everyday routine that you do first thing in the morning and in case you just need some inspiration for how you can see God in the small I just want to name two books um, that I found really helpful Liturgy of the Ordinary it's about the ordinary things of life it's putting sacred practices into your everyday life by Tish Warren it's just allowing you to um, to, to kind of welcome God into the everyday things that we're doing. And then this other one by Tom Howard, Splendour in the Ordinary, your home as a holy place. Your home is truly a holy place, even if the book cover looks a little bit weird. Um, that's savage, isn't it? <laughs> to a publisher. Anyway, Tom Howard in his book, and it's absolutely brilliant, says there are two ways to live. My life for yours or my life for me. Those are the two ways that we can choose to live our lives it's either centered around the the worship of God and the service of others all my life is going to be all about me centered around me and the temptation back to our desires is that with those distorted desires we're going to live our life for ourselves and this is what James hammers hard on in verse 4 he says this you adulterous people it's old testament language right he's looking at the unfaithfulness of the the people of Israel, the people of God, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means becoming an enemy of God? In in other words, put your faith and trust in him. Offer up your desires to God. Don't play the game of the world. It doesn't lead to a good place. Don't be out for yourself. This is the upside down principle of the kingdom, right? When you lay your life down, you will be raised up. You will find it. When you submit your desires, you will align them to the will of God. That is the message of Jesus, that he laid down his life so that you can have life in all its fullness. It says in Romans, for even Christ did not please himself. Even Christ, Christ himself did not please himself. He didn't play that game. Instead, he laid down his desires so that they would align with the will of the Father. Wisdom comes through humility. Humility comes through the alignment of our desires to the will of God. 
And that alignment comes through the submission of ourselves to God. Many will know that in the 18th century, there was a, a great revival, the great awakening that took place in the US where many, many people came to faith. And one of the key preachers, the pastors, one of the key revivalists of that time was Jonathan Edwards. Crucially, not Johnny Edwards in our own community. <laughs> He's great, but not that great. And crucially, not the world record holding British triple jumper, Jonathan Edwards, who got that triple jumping world record in 1996, 95, 95, 1995, 26 years ago. Genuinely, well done for holding it for that long. But, but Jonathan Edwards, the revivalist, wrote a book with a catchy title. You can vaguely see it on the screen there, but I'm going to read it out for you because it is catchy. Some thoughts concerning the present revival of religion in New England and the way in which it ought to be acknowledged and promoted. Not would have got past <laughs> a publisher these days. But his observations truly are gold. A little bit like the triple jumper. I didn't even write that one. <laughs> we, long, we long, we long, we long, we long to see an outpouring of God's yeah. spirit, right? We long to see that in our time, in our land. So anything we can glean from this wisdom of what he's observing, of what he's seeing during the Great Awakening is going to help us. And he picks up, in the middle of this book, he has a section on this theme of humility and of pride. And he picks up on that verse from James 4, which is actually quoting Proverbs, where he says, God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. And he lays out in this little pamphlet in this book just how important humility was in the people of God. More than that, just how destructive spiritual pride can be and it should be a warning to all of us and I just want to jot out some observations using slightly different language than probably he did of what he saw and how this might help us this this is almost to like sit with during this week as a bit of an audit how do you think you're doing and it's not to judge it's not to condemn but hopefully it is to challenge because when you see this list of some characteristics some traits of the spiritually proud and some characteristics some traits of those who were humble, who saw fruit, who saw revival break out, I devastatingly see so many of my own postures, so many of my own characteristics sitting on the left-hand side, sitting on the side of spiritual pride. It should be a challenge to all of us. Here are just some of the things he says. He says that for those who are spiritually proud, they see faults in others way quicker than the awareness of the faults in themselves. They spot them in others. They, they're judgmental, which is the second one, right? That they, they have contempt. They see others with judgment instead of the worth that's in them, the gold that is in them. Yeah. That is what it looks like to have humility, to see others as they truly are, as they, they were designed to be. It leads to separation, to division within a community rather than unity, which makes sense, right? They were dogmatic about everything. They didn't know what the priorities were. They didn't know which were the ones that were the absolute non-negotiables and which were the ones that they could have a little bit more flexibility and generosity in. They, they were dogmatic about everything instead of having perspective. When you have humility, you have perspective. They were combative. They wanted to be right all of the time. Or, and I didn't write this on the slide crucially, they were completely timid because they never wanted to be wrong. I don't know how many of us would fit into that. You see an argument and you really believe about it. You have a conviction, but you don't really want to get involved or you so want to get involved because you just want to win. Instead, those that were humble, they had curiosity. They wanted to hear the story of others. They wanted to hear the hearts of others for what they truly were. And ultimately, and for some reason, this made me feel really emotional writing it. They were just unhappy. They were just unhappy. 
instead of joyful. And we know, we've talked about this in months gone by, one of the signs, one of the characteristics of revival is joy. It's the sound of singing. It's the sound of joy around us. I truly believe if we, if we want to see another move of God, yeah. if we want to see it, we've got to make sure that we've got right with him and right with others. We need to pursue humility. We need to press into it. It's such an invitation from James to do that. And as I close up, I, I just want to apply some of this very specifically um, to those who will be in the middle of making really big decisions. Like needless to say, which sounds a little bit weird, but needless to say, there are so many people who are in a transition moment right now. That jobs are changing, new ones losing jobs, they're moving flats into new places, they're moving in or out of the city, schools might be coming back online, there's all sorts of transition happening. And the stats that came out last week, a week ago today, suggested that at least 700,000, so about 10% of the city of London, of those who would call London home, have likely left over the last year. Some to do with COVID, some to do with Brexit. There's all sorts of stuff going on, but there are huge amounts of transition that are going on at the moment. And at key decision points, we've got to choose wisdom. We need more wisdom. We need to cultivate it in our life by humility, by submitting our desires. We need to ask for it. James 1, remember, for those who need it, ask for it. And we could have a whole other talk on decision-making, and maybe we should, but here's my simple encouragement. As you seek the voice of God, prioritise calling over comfort. That is my encouragement. Pursue the my life for yours narrative rather than my life for me. And at the end of chapter four, right at the end of the passage that Emma read earlier, there's a little PS note from James. He says this, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, savage? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Such a strong way to end this chapter. It's likely that James is talking to believers, right? That's who his audience were. They were probably merchants. Some of the people that he's referencing here, they were quite wealthy. And they were going from place to place, doing business in a city and then moving on a little while later. And you might say, that seems okay. That seems like perfectly natural for the business that they were in. And that's kind of right. But here's what James is trying to get at. The dust was still settling on the floor after the death and resurrection of Jesus. These believers under incredible strain, under incredible persecution, changed everything. They changed everything about their lives. They had to. They had to for their own safety. And yet, so many of them went back to the way that they were doing life before, before their lives were completely transformed and changed by the person of Jesus. Instead of serving the city that they were in, they were extracting from the city. Remember that Jeremiah 29 verse, seek the peace and prosperity of the city that you are in. And they were just extracting as much wealth, as much business, as much as they could get from it and then moving on to the next place. Many in our family, in the KXC family, are in the middle of making big Truly exciting, by the way, decisions, kingdom decisions. And there is an opportunity to seek God's presence afresh as you do that. Invite him in to that decision-making process. And I just want to make sure I'm not being London-centric here because I think there is a danger of that. When we read of the early church in Acts, there was incredible persecution which dispersed the church far and wide. 
They became the diaspora, the dispersed church around the nations. It was an incredible move of the Spirit. And I'm sure that the Spirit is doing something like that again. Who knows? But my encouragement, no matter what the outcome, whatever it leads you to, is to follow the lead of the Spirit. Listen to his voice. Listen to where he's calling and leading you to go. Choose comfort, uh, calling, don't choose comfort, choose calling over comfort. It's the most fruitful way. Yeah. Genuinely believe it's the most fun way. Yeah. It's the best kingdom adventure that you could have. Verse 15 again, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. James, as he introduces himself at the beginning of this letter, a servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, he urges the church in the first century, as I think he would today, seek heavenly wisdom seek wisdom choose the way of humility submit your desires to him and listen to the voice of God as you pursue calling over comfort